Welcome to the Vancouver International Film Festival podcast, a podcast dedicated to some of the most exciting live conversations that happen at the festival and our year-round program. I'm your host, Ken Tsui, Director of Creative Engagement and Live Programming here at the festival, and in this episode, we present Director Alex Gibney. Alex Gibney is an Oscar and Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, garnering an Academy Award for his 2007 documentary, Taxi to the Dark Side. In a prolific career, his credits include Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, and We Steal Secrets Only, to name a few. For this virtual creator talk, Alex is joined by VIF's year-round programmer, Tom Charity, to discuss Gibney's incredible body of work. We join them both in the middle of the conversation, talking about Citizen K, a documentary about Mikhail Khodorovsky, an unlikely martyr for the anti-Putin movement. Yeah, so Khodorkovsky was a son of, 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 uh, of engineers, grew up in modest means in the Soviet era. And... And then just post-Gorbachev in the time of Yeltsin and the tank and all that, Khodorkovsky became one of those people who understood how to take advantage of this kind of Wild West capitalism that was practiced in Russia, um, you know, once the Soviet Union was broken up, Russia in the early 90s. And this was a period when um, it was kind of a free-for-all. There weren't really any rules. There was no rule of law. The government um, took a bunch of mid-sized enterprises and decided to issue vouchers for them, and everybody got a piece of those enterprises, as if, but 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 at, at, at a terrible discount. And nobody, you know, you have to remember that capitalism, in effect, was illegal in the Soviet Union, and now people were expected to wheel and deal as if they were sophisticated capitalists and investors, and very few people could do that. Arkovsky was one who could. And um, he took great advantage of that. He he collected a bunch of these vouchers and managed to to parlay that, you know, buying them on the cheap and um, um, and, and and suddenly taking control of a of a large number of companies. And he he keeps getting more and more and more money. Next thing you know, he buys a bank. He starts to do banking for the state. Um, perhaps in a number of dodgy deals, he. He, he, he manages to um, extend his advantage. And then in a terrible, um, very crooked deal called Loans for Shares, in which <coughs> um, Boris Yeltsin, who was fighting for his political life, desperately needed funding from rich businessmen like Khodorkovsky, basically said, look, um, please lend me, i.e. the state, a bunch of money so I can pay pensions and also give me a bunch of money for my campaign. And, and for collateral, I'll offer, you know, the, um, the right to auction these huge state companies like the globe girdling, um, Yukos oil, which is ultimately what Khodorkovsky ended up with when the state defaulted as they knew that they would. So Khodorkovsky was a group of about nine people who ultimately came to control about 50% of the Russian economy by the late 90s, early 2000s. And he was very much of a buccaneer. Um, and uh, while there was talk about, and, and, and there was real freedom in Russia in terms of freedom of speech, nevertheless, 
it was a ruthless time full of uh, contract killings, a lot of mafia behavior. Um, it, it was really a, a crazy time and a, and a time of enormous income inequality. But Hodakovsky came out of that era on top. And then on the way, well, and, and, and maybe right at a key moment in 2000, he comes in contact with a young man named Vladimir Putin, who was um, installed in power by Boris Yeltsin on literally Y2K. Um, he was a trusted lieutenant, a kind of a bureaucrat, former KGB um, operative. And Yeltsin installs him as president. And everybody thinks he might be a forward looking reformer. Um, and that's when the 2000s start. And it would set off a, in motion, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of um, collision course between Khodorkovsky and Putin, ultimately ending up with Putin putting Khodorkovsky in a Siberian gulag for about 10 years of his life. He's like, like several subjects that uh, you've made films about in the past. And I'm thinking of people like Elliot Spitzer and uh, Fela Kuti, uh, Julian Assange and the smartest guys in the room. Um, they're kind of super intelligent, uh, charismatic type A people. Um, so I'm interested in how you connected with, connected with Khodorkovsky and <coughs> what kind of qualities you're looking for when you're evaluating a possible subject for a film? Well, in this particular case, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in power and sometimes abuses of power. And in the wake of the 2016 election and Russia's interference in it, um, that is to say the 2016 U.S. election, um, you know, it seemed like we should know a little bit more about Russia. This, you know, we remember the Soviet Union, but I don't think people in the United States in particular didn't know that much about the new Russia, what it, what it was, how it was run. You know, they'd heard of Vladimir Putin. He was a, you know, a, a notorious figure. But beyond that, they didn't know much. So I thought it wouldn't be interesting to do a film about how power works in the new Russia. And uh, that led me to Hodakovsky. I was introduced to him by my two producers, John Batsik and um, P.J. Van Sandvik, both of whom are London residents. And, um, and John Batsik, a veteran, you know, documentary producer. Um, and I, I was very much engaged by him. And we, we met at a small um, coffee shop in Soho in London. And um, he agreed to participate in a film over which he would have no control, but in which he would um, give, um, you know, how he got to where he was, what happened to him when he went to prison. And, and, and he had very much an agenda, I think, because <clears throat> he's very much an you know, an opposition figure now in terms of um, running against Vladimir Putin. So that, I think, was his motivation for participating. But in any event, I, I managed to get him to sit down in a chair for 10 days over a period of about six months um, and tell his story as he saw it. And then my job was then to contextualize it go to Russia, talk to people who knew him there, uh, and, and, and put it into a film. It's fair to say that narcissists make good subjects? They always are, because they like to talk about themselves, 
And and narcissists also tend to be the people who um, gravitate toward positions of power, not surprisingly, because uh, when you're in a position of power, a lot of people pay attention to you. They tend to flatter you. So narcissists tend to <laughs> tend to find themselves or tend to um, grope toward positions of power. I think no doubt about that. Perhaps you could tell us some of the techniques and tricks you have up your sleeve for getting a good interview out of people. I, I don't like to think of getting a good interview as being imbued with many tricks. I think the, the key to getting a good interview is convincing somebody that you're interested in what they want to say. That is to say that you approach them in a way that makes them feel that you're going to reckon seriously with what they have to tell you. You know, there's an old journalistic saw, which is it's 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 um, it's not that hard getting people to talk. It's hard getting them to shut up by which I and, and, and the point of that is if you can put somebody in a zone where they feel that you are really listening to them and they can trust you to be an honest broker about what it is they're saying, not to carve it up mercilessly in in ways that are unrepresentative to what they're saying. It's it's um, it's it's pretty evident that you can get something um, reasonably revealing, and uh, you know my approach is um, to sort of self-abnegating, and uh, it's a little bit like for 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 anybody who remembers the famous Peter Saw Peter Falk uh, detective series Columbo. I'm a little bit like Columbo, you know, rumpled trench coat, mumbling, you know, can barely get um, a question out. But I, I, and I think perhaps out of pity for me, interview subjects um, generally fill the empty spaces. I would say that is one thing that for documentarians who are interested in doing interviews, uh, there's nothing like silence to be able to get interesting answers. Don't feel inclined to always fill the silence. Sometimes the silence um, is uncomfortable in ways that can be very productive. I don't fall for that trick, by the way. <laughs> I was curious that you didn't interview his wife in the film. There are, there are sequences in the film where he refuses to go into exile. Uh, uh, he would rather go to prison. Uh, he puts his life on the line. He goes on hun hunger strike more than once. Um, so I was surprised not to get his wife's perspective on those choices. He was being somewhat protective about his wife um, throughout the entire process. I mean, I think, let's remember, this is a guy who in all likelihood is the object of fascination by a number of people close to Putin who would probably like to kill him. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the film is how many Russian emigres end up dead in or around London. And I think there was a, a view by Hodakovsky. And, you know, we, we had requested over time, can we hang out at your house and this and that. He was extremely reluctant. He doesn't mind putting himself in danger. But when it comes to his family, he's much more reluctant about that. So I, I pretty much respected that. And uh, we showed images of her uh, and the kids um, as a way of, and, and I asked him questions about how he managed this risk in terms of his relationship with his wife. But 
I was reasonably respectful of his um, preference not to involve his his wife in the film. You mentioned the danger associated with being a critic of Putin. Um, did that give you pause about taking on the project yourself? And I'm not just thinking about your own safety, but but you go to Russia, you speak to to people who'd still live there uh, and ask them to talk about this in a candid way. Um, are there any, did you have any misgivings about that? Did you take any precautions around that kind of work? For ourselves, we took some basic precautions. I mean, when you go to Russia as a journalist or as a filmmaker, you know, it's best to go with a, a burner computer and a burner phone because they'll both be suffused with malware and you'll likely be listened to throughout. We used a Russian crew, which was hugely helpful. We kept a very small footprint. We did recognize that some people might have been at some risk to talk about Khodorkovsky. That said, you know, Russia is an interesting country in the sense that, you know, um, it's not North Korea. So, you know, there is... Um, there was a certain amount of freedom to express dissent there. And um, uh, it's not, and if you do criticize Putin, it's not an automatic trip to the gulag. So, so I think that there is a, a reckoning with it, but for people closer and closer and closer to the circles of power, you know, we found that we would get people to agree to be interviewed. And then at the last minute they would uh, cancel. But beyond that, you know, we were reasonably, um, you know, we reckoned that that the people who did talk to us felt that they could do so in a way that would not be uh, to their um, detriment in terms of uh, health. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're doing, I mean, you don't go into this film as an expert on Russia. No, I was I was naive, and 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 in a way that was part of the the fun of it. You know, sometimes you do films because you know a lot about a subject, and sometimes you do films because you don't know that much at all. And 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 I tried to express in the film the idea that I was learning as I went. Hodakovsky obviously knew quite a bit, but you know, along the way, you check and you you know, as a filmmaker or a journalist, you try to say what happened. You go and you. Uh, investigate and you explore and you take your camera with you and you show what you observe. Um, And you don't want to pretend to do more than that. Um, So, you know, people can take this as what it is, which is somebody who's not a Russia expert wading into a story and trying to make sense of it. Of course, you had the drawback of not speaking Russian. I did, though I, I had a, my uh, associate producer, Ophelia Harutunian, is Armenian, and she spoke she spoke fluent Russian. Um, so that was very useful there. And we had a Russian crew when we were in Russia, um, and that was hugely helpful. And I find that very beneficial in going to a foreign country. Um, but in London, we put in place a, you know, a, a simultaneous translation mechanism in the interview process. Hodakovsky understands English pretty well, but he doesn't, he speaks it haltingly. And <clears throat> he wanted to express himself with, with subtlety and sophistication. So, so we had a system of, uh, of, of, of small earpieces 
and simultaneously tr simultaneous translators who were sitting in another room so that we could have a conversation. We didn't have to wait for translators to do, um, to, to sort of summarize what was going on. We could have the conversation in real time, which turned out to be hugely important. And, and I, I can't say I learned Russian, but I learned the inflections. I learned certain words and, and could follow the emotion of it over time in a way that was hugely valuable, uh, in a way that wouldn't have been possible if, if I had had to sit still for endless translations after long raps. So we were able to engage in conversation. It was useful. So in a way, Hodokowski uh, is a key. He's a key to a wider topic here, um, which is about that transition uh, that Russia went through to capitalism. And of course, about the rise of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, so what's interesting is Khodorkovsky in, in the year 2000, when Putin comes to power, thinks he's a reformer. But very quickly, he learns that, that, that Putin has other ideas in mind and that he is a closet authoritarian. And basically, he's going to um, use the popular discontent toward the oligarchs, and Khodorkovsky was one of the oligarchs, to be able to um, manage politically his own rise to power and, uh, and then uh, go after the oligarchs, you know, like Khodorkovsky, and then replace them in, with new ones. So it's, a, it's an intriguing moment. I know you didn't meet him, but, but what's your take on Vladimir Putin? Well, I, I, I agree with Khodorkovsky. He's very much of a chameleon. The one thing that was interesting to me about going to Russia was I got a much better understanding of how savvy a politician he is, because particularly when you go outside the big cities, you know, he's, he, you know, sort of like Trump in the United States. He's very much um, uh, appreciated or, um, you know, he has a he has a real following and and he's good at at, uh, at manipulating popular opinion. And he's also very fast on his feet, you know, he's, as Hodakovsky uh, suggests here, he's not somebody who has any particular ideological bent or sort of larger vision of what he wants Russia to be. He's more interested in his own power. Um, he is, and, and in that sense, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of narcissists, he's a classic narcissist in that sense. And I think as he uh, took the reins of power, he began to build a system that was more and more um, oriented around him, though he's not all powerful. He makes deals with people all the time. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the film is that how to, I once asked Hodakovsky, you know, what do you think Putin's greatest nightmare is? And I meant it in a kind of a metaphorical way. But Hodokovsky took me at my word and, and imagined Putin's real nightmare. And he felt that, that the nightmare would be like that of a mafia boss, in this case, wandering through the Kremlin palace. But now nobody's answering his phone calls um, and, and the walls are closing in on him. So it was this sense of... Um, uh, and that's a very narcissistic thing, too, this idea that, you know, the phone calls just stop. Suddenly people stop looking to you, that you're not the center of attention anymore, which 
And the flip side of that is you're the center of the worst kind of attention, which is some kind of attack that may take your life. So, um, you know, that, that's what's interesting about Putin. He's very much of a he's very much a creature of the moment of opportunity and a classic narcissist in the sense that it's all about him ultimately. Uh, but though, you know, he's very clever about using his own personality to, to um, reflect in some way uh, a sense of pride and confidence in, in, in Russia. So he, he, he connects with people on that kind of nationalist level. You know, it's like, I am Russia, um, I'm with you. Make Russia great again. Yep, that's right. And Khodorkovsky, is his rivalry just on a personal level, do you think? Or, or did he genuinely have a kind, kind of a weakening of conscience? Well, I think Khodorkovsky changed in prison. I, I, I think a, a couple of things happened along the way. One is that Khodorkovsky, after the great, after 1998, when the ruble fell and oil prices fell, you know, it was a very rough time for his company, Yukos, uh, and for Russia in general. People were starving. Um, but Hodakovsky came out of that and realized that unlike the early 90s, where he says to himself, you know, the, he, he thought of the capitalism and the economy as kind of a game. He realized it wasn't a game. It was this is how people uh, eat. This is how people make a living. And so um, he, kind, he comes out of that with a greater understanding of the political economy and also an understanding that which is somewhat self-motivated that for Russia to succeed and, and for business in Russia to succeed, it needs uh, connections with a broader international um, economic uh, sphere. And he starts to do that and he starts to explore a, a, a huge um, merger with Exxon. Um, And that's where he gets Putin's attention because Putin thinks here's a guy who's gambling with Russia's um, key natural resource, which is oil, still today. And, and that's why Russia's having a bit of a problem now. He's going he's gonna to play ball with the Americans. Uh, so there was that. Um, I think also Khodorkovsky was the richest and most powerful oligarch who was very definitely buying votes in the Duma, the representative body in, 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 um, in Russia. And, and Putin had very clearly said, look, you guys do what you want to do. You guys, meaning the oligarchs, do what you want to do on the economic sphere, but don't get involved in politics. Well, Khodorkovsky was getting involved in politics and so maybe thinking that he had a run in, you know, at the presidency. So for a number of reasons, you know, this rivalry starts to develop. And then Khodorkovsky calls him out publicly for corruption. And just a few months later, Khodorkovsky finds himself in a Siberian prison. Now, this becomes the interesting part of the story where you have a guy who uh, was the richest man in Russia. He was worth billions and billions of dollars. Um, now he's in a Siberian prison The only power he has is the power to take his own life in a hunger strike, which he he threatens to do a number of times. He goes on a number of hunger strikes. And um, um, that's all the power there is. And suddenly, I think in prison, he has a kind of an epiphany in terms of what it means to be a citizen and what it means to be at the other end of abuses of power. Um, and so um, 
he um, he becomes a dissident. For me, in, in a larger sense, he becomes one of uh, the most public critics of the Putin regime. And when they put him on a show trial, which is, you know, it was a ridiculous trial with trumped up charges, he turns it into grand theater where he mocks the entire process because it was a, a process worth mocking. It had no relationship to any kind of independent rule of law. And he becomes a kind of international figure holding out against authoritarianism. So a guy who goes from one who abused power to being at the other end of it and now becoming a kind of dissident saying, I'm going to speak truth to power. It's a really interesting story in that sense. Well, it's an enthralling film. Uh, so I, I recommend people to check it out. I'd like to broaden the discussion out a little bit uh, to talk more generally about your work. Um, there's a great phrase that's used uh, about certain journalists, uh, muckraker, someone who is willing to rake through the muck. Um, I wonder if you see yourself in that tradition and what are your thoughts about uh, how documentary filmmakers fit alongside journalism as, as it's practiced today? Uh, what can you do that, say, a New York Times journalist can't do? That second question is a trickier question. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in investigative journalists, and I think there are a number of investigative journalists, print journalists, who are practicing at a very, very, very high level. So I'm not one of those who believes that journalism is dead, just the opposite. I think there are great journalists doing, working at a very high level. And, you know, my dad was a journalist. Uh, you know, uh, I think of myself as a filmmaker with journalistic baggage. I think one, one of the things that films can do is to create a sense of, you know, a, a powerful emotional sense of certain worlds. You know, they can bring them to life in, in an emotional way that, um, that it's harder for print journalism to do. Uh, and I think also at their best, they're, you know, um, I like to think that, uh, you know, my films embrace the contradictions. Well, I, I, you know, I don't mind the term muckraker, and I'm certainly interested in, in power and abuses of power. And you can tell from my films pretty much where I stand um, in relation to people who abuse that power. Nevertheless, you know, my films are intended to look at uh, these characters and these situations in in very human terms, because you know I spend a lot more time on the perps than I do on the victims, which is not to say I don't have empathy for the victims. I do. And that's why I do what I do. But but the but the point is, if you want to under, if you want to stop crime, you have to understand the criminals, the mind of the criminal, and how they work. Um, and and very often, the most intriguing part of that is that. Sometimes the worst miscreants or malefactors are people who believe that what they're doing is for a better good, um, that the end justifies the means. Whenever somebody tells me that the end justifies the means, you know, I, 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 I'm looking for the nearest bomb shelter because this is not good news for me. This is very, very bad news because it means that that person is on their way to some kind of corruption. Police have a term for it. It's called noble cause corruption. And that is territory that I'm very much interested in, in the films that I do. Uh, not just to say, look, what this person did was bad, because, you know, to say that person is bad, that person is bad, but the rest of us are good. That, it, it, to me, is the worst kind of misunderstanding of the human condition. We're all a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. Um, and under certain circumstances, some of us get power, and then 
you know, we reckon with what we do um, to, to, you know, there's an old trick that people in power have, which is to find scapegoats. And I think people out of power fall into that trap as well. You know, they think, well, Trump is the bad guy, right? If we just got rid of Trump, everything would be okay. And there's some truth to that. Um, but I think that Trump also represents a, a bigger problem than just the individual himself. So it's this territory that, I, that I'm really interested in. It's not just a list of things that happen that are bad. It's investigating the human psychology of uh, oppression and, uh, and abuses of power in a way that gets us to understand when they happen and why. You've been incredibly prolific. Um, I think the IMDb lists over 40 directing credits since 2005 and nearly a hundred as a producer over that same period. Um, so I'm curious about what drives you to, to take on work at that extent and, and um, what, what it is that attracts you about a project, whether you worry about casting yourself a little too thin or, and, and what are the benefits of having that kind of momentum in your work life? I mean, the first thing that I would say, which I don't, which I pretty much always say to this question, which is a perfectly reasonable question. I just get asked a lot is that none of my films are fast to make, you know, most of them take a good bit of time. The Hodakovsky films took two years. Um, but I do tend to work on more film, more than one film at once. Um, you know, the fact is there were a lot of years in my life where I couldn't get arrested. I, I, I didn't know if I was ever going to get to make a film. It was a very tough time. And, um, to some extent, I'm just making up for lost time. I'm thinking like, whoa, I have an opportunity to make films. Why wouldn't I make as many as I can? So there's a kind of, you know, super simple answer to that question. Like, whoa, people are giving me money to make films. Great. I'm going to make as many as I can. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, in my role as producer, and I love producing, and by the way, I learned to be a filmmaker, uh, you know, as a, I learned to be a good director by being a producer and watching other directors work, particularly on the Martin Scorsese series, The Blues, where I got to observe up close as a producer, you know, some extraordinary filmmakers like Scorsese and Eastwood and Vin Vendors and Antoine Fuqua and others. Um, so as a producer, I take great joy in uh, helping other people get their films made. And I think I'm good at that. Uh, and, and sometimes I do very little because I don't need to. And sometimes, you know, I have to push a little bit harder depending but, um, you know, that accounts for a certain volume. In terms of my work as a director, you know, I think about there's an interesting German filmmaker, not a documentarian, but a fiction filmmaker named Rainer Werner Fassbinder. If you look at, look at Fassbinder's career sometime and how many movies he did over his short career, he really did a lot. They weren't all great, but many of them were great. And, um, and I think that he honed his skill by doing that many movies. You know, a lot of people are very abstemious so that they develop things forever and ever and ever. I, I think you, you maintain a certain sharpness by working all the time. It's good. 
I wonder if you can distill some of the some of the things you you observed and picked up from people like Scorsese and vendors um, that you were able to to bring to your work as a director, and also you know having having now been doing this uh, for fifteen years nonstop, what you know now about directing that perhaps you didn't know in two thousand and five. Well, the first thing I, that's the, an easier thing to 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 answer, and that is. You know, way back when, you know, in the in the '90s and the early 2000s, you know, I would start off a film with a very clear and coherent plan, and I would stick to that plan, and that was a huge mistake. Um, you know, because it, it sounds good in theory, but what it means is that you're not open to other possibilities. You're not open to seeing that, particularly as a documentarian, that that you know. You might think that abstractly the story should be this, but as a documentarian, you have to live with what you know happens in front of your camera or the archive that you manage to find. You got to go where the good stuff is, um, and you have to be open to exploring and even uh, realizing that your original premise was completely wrong, and to engage in the idea that that's a good thing that you can now pivot and go someplace else. So that was a huge learning experience that it took me a long time to really figure out properly. And I figured it out from other editors. You know, I started as an editor and, and one of the reasons I like to work with editors and not edit my own stuff is you can go out in the field and think you got something great. Um, and you show it to the editor and they think, well, you may think you've got something great, but it's not on tape. You know, it's not on film. Um, or you know, something you didn't think was that meaningful, they'll find and say, wow, this is incredible. You, you've got to take a look at this. So that is hugely useful. And in terms of what I learned, you know, one of the things I learned about, particularly from the documentary standpoint, from people like Vim Vendors and, and Scorsese and Eastwood and, and, and some of these other characters, Mike Figgis, is this idea that that you can have an enormous respect for real life and still um, make films that are authored work, sort of like nonfiction um, books, um, you know, the best ones, you know, like the great new journalism works, like what Norman Mailer did or Tom Wolfe, you know, that, that, um, that you can invest in a certain kind of visual style, depending on what the film is, that... Um, you you explore, but you also express in ways that are um, in you know in, intentionally and you know provocatively cinematic. That that you're not just a fly on the wall. <laughs> I was on a panel one time with Werner Herzog. Uh, I don't agree with this entirely, but he says, "Don't don't ever be a fly on the wall. Be a hornet. You must sting." <laughs> Um, and I think that was his way of saying, you've got to have attitude. And I like that idea, you know, because uh, even people like Ricky Leacock and um, Al Mazels, who's a wonderful man, and D.A. Pennebeaker, they weren't really flies on the wall. Um, they weren't like security cameras. They were poets with cameras. That's who they were. And a poet is not somebody that's just observing. A poet is somebody who's observing and expressing. And that's maybe, you know, what I aspire to anyway. I, I'm reminded of, 
a remark in your film about Hunter S. Hunter S. Thompson, Gonzo. Um, somebody talks about his reporting and says, "Well, he wasn't the most he wasn't the most factual, but he was the most accurate." <laughs> that's a good line, and I think it's true. I think sometimes, you know, that's another thing I like about something that that Herzog is famous for saying is he aspires to an ecstatic truth, not an accountant's truth. Um, you know, an accountant's truth is the phone book. The phone book is factual, but it's not that interesting to read. Um, and sometimes there's a deeper truth in uh, the juxtaposition of images in ways that lead you someplace important. That said, I'm not a fan of people who think that, you know, they can just fool people in documentary or that there isn't any kind of journalistic rigor necessary. I think there is. But uh, but nevertheless, I think, you know, films can be agent provocateurs. That, that's a good thing. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about The Innocence Files, um, which can be viewed on Netflix. Uh, it's a series of, I think, nine documentaries um and you directed the seventh uh in that series which is called <laughs> lucky yeah um tell us about how you became involved in that and and what what attracted you about being part of that look i mean this was a netflix project and a netflix decided that they wanted to do something about the innocence project which is an extraordinary um project started by barry sheck and peter newfeld um and it's an attempt, it has been an attempt over the years to try to um, look at people who were wrongly accused or wrongly convicted and uh, find justice for them. So I knew Barry a little bit. I knew Peter a little bit. And when Netflix suggested it, I said, look, this is such important work. You know, the opportunity to celebrate it is great. So I, I jumped on board. And then I was looking for a story that had a potentially happy ending, but also I didn't want a story that I, I, I wanted to take a bit of a risk and find a story that I hoped would be a happy ending, but for which I would go along for the ride. And, and that's what happened here. It was a case in progress and we didn't know for sure, you know, at the start, whether or not um, the, the character at the heart of the film, a, a, a young man named Chester Burnett, uh, was going to be exonerated. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until <laughs> very late in the process that we learned that he, that, that he would be. So what was interesting to me, I mean, we've seen several, many films about miscarriages of justice uh, in the past, but this series really sets out to question the reliability of forensic evidence uh, and the way that the legal system currently operates. Um, which is which is fascinating because TV and film is so kind of responsible for legitimizing forensic evidence in the first place. My my kids' high school teacher structured a whole semester around CSI. Yeah. Um, so I, I was curious about that and and whether you think that films like this, campaigning films, do serve meaningful reform or do they just preach to the choir? I hope they don't just preach to the choir. I mean, I think that, you know, in a certain genre way, these are crime films and they should be interesting to just about anybody for that reason. But I do think that they show um, fundamental flaws 
in our justice system. You know, I think in some essential way, human beings believe in justice. There have been a lot of scientific studies done showing that even from, even as infants, we are hardwired to be interested in justice. And I think, you know, when we see injustice and we see justice improperly applied, we get upset. And when you can show that that is happening on a systemic level, then it hopefully offers some opportunity for change. Because I think that's one of the things this does. You know, it, the, the series breaks it down. There are three, three filmmaker three filmmakers responsible, you know, uh, Roger Ross Williams, Liz Garbus, myself, each of us took, um, you know, a, a different thematic bucket. One was sort of junk science. That was Roger. Uh, one was sort of the problem with witness testimony and the unreliability of it. That was Liz. And then myself, prosecutorial misconduct. And in all those cases, you can see how over time we have simply ignored systemic flaws in the system that uh, that keep um, pushing us into getting it wrong. And in some fundamental way, you know, everybody should agree that we don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to put the guilty person, we don't want to put the innocent person in prison and let the guilty person go free so that they can commit more crimes. It's that simple, right? Um, but it turns out that um, we have a system that uh, often encourages that. So both Dirty Money and The Innocence Files are, are available on Netflix. Uh, Citizen K will be available through Amazon Prime. Um, what's your experience of distribution through streaming? Do you miss a theatrical release? Does that matter? The, the fact that you're reaching so many people at once, is that is that a fulfilling thing for you? I love seeing my films on a big screen in a the theater. It's very exciting. That said, What's most important to me is that my films get seen by as many people as possible. In that sense, you know, what the streamers are doing is great. And I've done a lot of work on, you know, for HBO, which is, you know, a channel. It's not really a, um, you know, it's it's not a theatrical experience. Um, and And it's gotten a lot easier to not have to get so worked up about those discussions, those distinctions, because back in the day, when people were watching TV on tiny little screens, you know, that was a more of a problem. Now, you know, a lot of people have big screen TVs with, with very nice speakers that, you know, in some ways are better than the local Cineplex. And that's one thing I would like to change. Like I'd like, you know, uh, I wish uh, theater chains would up their game. God knows with COVID, there's a whole new challenge for that. Um, but now that we're all sheltering in place, you know, God bless the streamers, God bless the HBOs. You know, I want these films to be seen. That's the most important thing. I would like to link the rise of, of Netflix and, and Amazon um, to the wider kind of growth of the Internet, which has replaced those media institutions that used to constitute the fourth estate and which provided a kind of middle ground, a center where society could could talk. And now it feels like in the US in particular that it's constantly ripped between these extreme, uh, diametrically opposed visions of the truth. And in fact, it's been identified by some people as a post-truth world. And I wonder where, where does that leave you as a documentary filmmaker? I know in the past you've been skeptical about 
filmmakers claims to objectivity. Um, don't you at least miss the aspiration to objectivity? Well, I don't think objectivity is possible, but that doesn't mean that even in a film in which you have a point of view, you can't be tethered to fact. I mean, I, 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 I think there's a difference there. And, and I, I think that, um, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of channels and, um, and, and different environments, that you've opened up a huge can of worms. I mean, I do think that the great thing about documentaries is often they embrace the contradictions of everyday life. And that is a powerful thing. And that's one of the things I like to do in, in my films, even, even ones that have a, an aggressive point of view. You know, one of my heroes, Marcel Ophuls, who did the film Sorrow and the Pity and a number of other great films, you know, once said, uh, you know, I always have a point of view. The trick is showing how hard it is to come to that point of view. And, and so, you know, in the best of all circumstances, a documentary becomes a sacred space where you can wrestle with these questions and begin to reckon with them and hopefully carry those questions with you long after the documentary is over. I do agree that the, you know, the broadcast news landscape has become a terrible place where it's a kind of um, shouting factory. And it's sort of a, a Pavlovian world where, you know, different, you know, ideological viewpoints get expressed depending on who the audience is. I, I don't find that particularly pleasing. Um, but in terms of the post-fact world, I mean, I, I think part of the problem there is beginning to educate uh, the audience in a way to... Um, understand better how they were often being fooled over time by people who are just peddling them something that may make them feel good. Vitriol is a powerful narcotic, um, but it generates a lot more heat than light. At what point do you decide what, what the kind of point of view is going to be, whether you're going to use a narrator, whether you're going to feature in the film yourself, um, or even who the, who the main kind of protagonist of the story is? Um, it's usually not at the beginning, though um, it sometimes is, but it's usually not at the beginning. And, and sometimes the, the story radically changes. I mean, my point of view about Julian Assange changed dramatically from the beginning to the end. Um, and, um, and my engagement with it and how I expressed it was, was, was radically different. Um, same thing, you know, I, I did a film about Lance Armstrong, which was supposed to be a follow doc, a verite doc. And, uh, it took five years because along the way, you know, Lance was popped for doping. So, <clears throat> you know, you have to be open. Um, that said, I think it's important. It, 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 it's very often important to start off with certain ideas about how you think you might like to attack it um, so that you at least have some kind of sense of context, but you don't want to be too rigid about it. So it's that wonderful balance between pre-planning and then the willingness to throw out the plan entirely if it doesn't seem to be serving the story. There are certain visual schemes on some of my films, like the way we shot interviews in Enron, for example, you know, where we made a big deal about reflective surfaces in the foreground because it was all about this sense of is it real or is it you know a, a facsimile is it a reflection 
of, of life. And, and, and so we, we built that as an aesthetic. Same thing in Taxi to the Dark Side, where we shoot, you know, all the interviews with people who were located at Bagram, which is where the murder took place, were shot against a certain backdrop and, and photographed in a certain way. Again, just to give a kind of visceral sense of being in that place, whereas all the other interviews were shot in a very different way. So it's not to say that there isn't some kind of visual plan or aesthetic. Um, same thing with, um, you know, The Inventor, this film I did about Elizabeth Holmes. You know, there was a very conscious uh, attempt to shoot it in a very different way than I would normally shoot my films because it seemed much more suited to her world, which was purposefully uh, slick in a way that was designed to fool people. And so the film, in a way, is really about fooling people. Do you know what you're going to be doing next or what the next thing we should look forward to is? Um, yep. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a quirky film that I did called Crazy Not Insane, which was to have been at the South by Southwest Film Festival, which was canceled, which will will be out later this year. And there are some other big projects I'm 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 coming out with that I've been busily working on, but I I'm I'm keeping them a secret for the moment. Well, I, I hope we will have the opportunity to uh, invite films and yourself over to Vancouver to share them together in the not too distant future. Yeah, it's a great pleasure to be talking to you in Vancouver. You know, one of my foundational moments in um, uh, as, as a filmmaker, I, was a, I started off as a fiction film editor and I lived in Vancouver for about mm, three months while we were editing a film uh, that was being shot there. Um, for the Samuel Goldwyn Company, and I was a, an assistant and then, you know, associate editor on that film. So, I, you know, I have great fond memories of Vancouver. So thanks again. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Alex. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for listening to this conversation recorded live from the Vancouver International Film Festival. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Creator Talks and Masterclasses are programmed by Fran Bergen. The podcast is created by Ellen Hadley and Clem Lobey on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nation.